Howdy everyone! Welcome back once again to the latest instalment of the Nasty Pasty Podcast, the show where decency and good taste are left behind and we embrace depravity and corruption instead. You know the score by now. This podcast is inspired by the video Nasties, a group of films that us poor saps in Britain were banned from watching when our esteemed leaders believed that they were turning us into criminally-minded psychopaths. They managed to get away with this by invoking the tried-and-trusted think-of-the-children argument. So, basically anyone who opposed the ban was seen as perverted devils who wished harm on our kids. No thought about consenting adults, though, eh? As a result of the debacle, certain films were disallowed for a very long time, whilst others that were released afterwards suffered major censorship, leading the UK to become one of the most strictly regulated and censored territories in the West. Thankfully, with the advent of cine literacy and common sense, most, if not all, of these films are now released for us to see and without censorship. But that only begs the question of why were they even banned at all? I've seen quite a few of them, and they're... Well, they're not exactly obscene or damaging in any way. Some examples are a little extreme and memorable for being so, but the majority of them are either fairly average or quite poor. As a result of this revelation, this podcast was given life to look at other examples which were out during the 80s that weren't listed as video nasties, but they probably ought to have been based on what was actually listed. We've covered films from many different genres and origins, and today it's no different. But it's a zombies with a twist theme today, so we look at two gut munchers that feature the traditional shambling zombie of Romero fame, but they add in a not-so-traditional element that freshens up the formula somewhat and allows for creative differences, although this time happening without any issues. Those films today are Lucio Fulci's City of the Living Dead and Amando de Osorio's Tombs of the Blind Dead. As everyone who's everyone will know about what zombie movies are, let's tuck into our first tasty example, City of the Living Dead. A psychic named Mary has an intense vision during a seance, in which she sees a priest hanging himself in a small town far away called Dunwich. As he dies, the streets become wreathed in fog and a ghastly wailing howls, as undead corpses begin to emerge from the ground. Out of sheer fright, Mary goes into a panic and dies. When the police arrive, Mary's acquaintance Teresa informs the police that her visions are real, while in Dunwich, a local bum called Bob sneaks into a derelict house to fool around with a sex doll, only to encounter a filth-ridden, rotten corpse of a small child. At the same time, some men drinking in the local bar, including a Mr. Ross, are shocked when the mirrors shatter and the walls crack right in front of their eyes. Whilst in New York, journalist Peter Bell investigates Mary's death, but fails to gain any traction at the police station. Back in Dunwich, therapist Jerry is talking to his patient Sandra when they're interrupted by Emily, who explains that she cannot make her appointment later due to seeing Bob. As she leaves, a cat that Sandra is stroking suddenly and inexplicably attacks her. Peter manages to locate Mary's burial site, where her casket has just been lowered into the ground, when she suddenly awakens inside. She kicks and struggles to be let free, which Peter barely hears. 
She then screams loudly, pushing Peter to grab a pickaxe and break her out of there, narrowly missing her head with it. Once rescued, Mary returns to Teresa, who explains to the pair that the gates of hell have opened underneath Dunwich and allowed the dead to rise. She forewarns that if the gate remains open by the time All Saints Day passes, the whole earth will be subject to the curse of the dead rising. In Dunwich, Emily encounters a frightened Bob who suddenly flees from her when a monstrous growl is heard. Upon following him, Emily is grabbed by the undead father Thomas, who smothers her to death with a putrid handful of slime and rotten flesh. Soon after this, a couple, Rosie and Tommy, are making out in their car when they're suddenly interrupted by strange noises. Father Thomas suddenly teleports in front of their car before disappearing and appearing again at Rosie's side. As he stares intensely at her, Rosie's eyes begin to bleed and she begins to slowly vomit up her own entrails, dying as they're forcefully expunged. A sickened Tommy is then grabbed from behind and has his brains squashed from his head by a rotten hand. Emily's body is found by the police and Jerry, with them assuming Bob to be the culprit, despite finding a puddle of rotten flesh, and the coroner concludes that she's died of fright. Mary and Peter start their journey towards Dunwich, whilst Jerry, Emily's mother and father, and her young brother John John attend her body viewing, with Jerry noticing an old lady who's also recently died called Mrs Holden, also from fear. Bob, alone and wandering around, is terrorised by visions of Father Thomas, while Mary and Peter stop to grab a bite to eat. The mortician who worked on Emily's corpse returns after the viewing to steal the body's possessions only to have his hand bitten by something which attacks him. John John, depressed at his sister's death, suddenly becomes aware of something making noises outside his window and is shocked to see an undead Emily appear between the shutters. Across town, Sandra calls Jerry in a panic, imploring him to come see her, while Bob sneaks into an empty basement and hides out in a car. When Jerry arrives, Sandra asks him to look in the kitchen and he is shocked to see Mrs Holden's body lying in her kitchen. Explain that she's just appeared out of nowhere, the pair suddenly hear a groaning noise and find Mrs Holden has now disappeared. Encountering further strange sounds and bleeding walls, the pair escape the house together. In the morning, Mr Ross finds Bob speaking with his daughter Anne in the basement and assumes the worst, beating the boy up and murdering him by ramming his head through a drill. Failing to find anyone else for help, Jerry and Sandra head to the cemetery just as Peter and Mary arrive in town. The four meet up and introduce themselves, with Mary and Peter explaining the gravity of the current situation. As they discuss the gates of hell in Jerry's apartment building, the foursome are suddenly assailed by a storm of rotten maggots which burst through the windows. Jerry then gets a scared phone call from John John, who explains that Emily has returned and killed their parents. Driving over to rescue him, Mary, Peter and Jerry explore the now completely uninhabited funeral parlour while Sandra takes John John to her house to safeguard him. As she reaches her front door with him, she is swiftly attacked by a zombified Rosie who rips off her scalp and part of her brain. John John runs away through the streets, terrorised by the zombie form of Tommy and Emily, just before he's rescued by Jerry. Dropping him off with the remaining police officers in the town, the remaining three head to the cemetery to find Father Thomas's grave, whilst at the bar, the patrons are attacked and killed by more of the phantom undead, including a newly reanimated, rotten Bob. Mary, Peter and Jerry go into the Thomas family crypt and find a hidden entrance to some catacombs behind Father Thomas's tomb. Gaining access, the trio continue on through the tunnels, only to encounter a zombified Sandra, who quickly teleports behind Peter and rips his brains out. As Sandra stares at Mary, her eyes begin to bleed until Jerry rescues her by impaling Sandra with a metal bar. Going a little further on, the remaining pair discover a cavern encrusted with countless skulls and bones, just as Father Thomas appears in a clearing up ahead, causing the dead to rise all around them. His stare entrances Mary, causing her eyes to bleed once more, until Jerry finds a large wooden crucifix which he uses to impale the priest, exposing his rotten innards. He immediately becomes immolated, as do the countless zombies around them. Making a quick getaway, the couple make it back to the surface as daylight breaks. Hearing the nearby laughter of John John, the couple begin to smile at having survived the events, just as Mary begins to see John John's smile becoming more sinister, causing her to scream in terror. Well, she certainly wasn't strangled. Doesn't seem to have been any kind of physical abuse. 
What was the cause of her death, then? Some kind of cardiac arrest. Only that expression on her face looks like pure fear, like something scared her to death. Scared? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Robbins. Do you know if your daughter had a heart condition? No. No? No, no, she was... Mr. Robbins. Oh, God. God. Well, what's our procedure? Sit tight. Everything depends on the autopsy. I'll sit tight. You'll get your orders after that from the DA. Okay, but let me hear from you, Joe. What's your opinion, Jerry? What's there to say? I'm at a total loss. It was... it was Bob. That pervert, you can bet on it. They should have put him away for life after what he tried to do with poor little Ann Ross. Listen, I'll call out all cars after that boy. And I wouldn't be surprised if he could tell us what happened to Rosie Kelvin and Frank's kid, too. Sheriff Russell! Sheriff, what the dickens is this? Good Lord. That kid's gonna fry. Mark my word. City of the Living Dead was one of those few films that I'd seen quite early in my discovery of video nasties. As explained a couple of times, the film that initially got me onto the era was Fulci's House by the Cemetery, which was unfortunately a cut version, but significantly it was from Vipco, the company responsible for releasing a few of the prominent video nasties, including The Boogeyman and Driller Killer. The first thing I did then, of course, was look up everything else that was in the Vipco Screen Time collection, So I remember picking up The Beyond, Rat's Night of Terror, The Slayer, House of Lost Souls, House of Clocks, A Blade in the Dark, and City of the Living Dead. It was notably uncut as well, so I remember enjoying it very much, especially for its bizarreness and similarity to Fulci's House by the Cemetery. It was Fulci's first picture after Zombie Flesh Eaters, which was of course a roaring success in Europe, Japan and the US. Presumably because he felt that he'd tapped into a new lucrative market of horror films, Fulci was excited to start another horror project and decided to collaborate with Dardano Sacchetti again on a new script. Deciding to take a more traditional approach to horror, though, Fulci began researching the works of H.P. Lovecraft and wanted to replicate that sense of malice and evil taking over, only adding the living dead as an indicator to those fans who enjoyed zombie flesh eaters. In fact, the original title, Paura Nella Cite dei Morte Viventi, which means fear in the city of the living dead, it was used because Fulci felt that there was an innate power and a palpable emotion in the word paura. Part of his inspiration is reflected in the town's name, Dunwich, which is from H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror, and the emphasis on the atmosphere and its concrete threat to the inhabitants of the story. Indeed, the film seems to have a near-dreamlike, interdimensional feel to the events, as though the evil is fear itself, rendering the surroundings and situations as corruptions of the physical world. There's a little bit more on that later, but essentially the film was Fulci's desire to make a more gothic traditional horror, though it did come with some unrelated elements too, like Fulci's personally added gross-out moments of gore. The Book of Enoch too, which is mentioned as being a harbinger of the film's events, is actually in reality a non-canonical religious text dated around 300 BC and credited to Enoch, who was the grandfather of Noah, the Ark Guy, which describes the rise and fall of the Nephilim, a group of fallen angels who descended to Earth and were cast out due to their behaviour. Subsequently, a portion of them survived the Great Flood as demons to taunt humans until the final judgement. Despite its grounding in reality, though, it has little to do with the living dead or any specific town. The film's ending is one of Fulci's more infamous ones as well, due to how confusing and banal it is. There's multiple apocryphal stories about how this came to pass, and no one seems to be able to agree on how the actual ending came about. It's a rather strange shot of John John running towards Mary and Jerry, which is fairly innocuous until Mary begins to stop smiling and looks more concerned. She then screams as the footage of John John slows down and then finally disintegrates. It's not clear exactly what Mary is supposed to be screaming at, since the slowed down footage looks decidedly unsinister. There were rumours, however, that coffee was spilled on the print by editor Vincenzo Tomasi, so they had to improvise. Or that Fulci actually just changed his mind after filming the original ending, whatever that was, but under production limits they had to just make a fast decision. 
The actor Carlo De Meo, however, insists that there was anything between three and 20 endings which are considered, so it does seem that the ending had been an issue for a while throughout the production. Principal photography started in early 1980, with most of the exteriors filmed in the United States. In New York, the Upper West Side stood in for the exterior of Teresa's apartment and the streets, while Calvary Cemetery was portrayed as Mary's final resting place. The town of Dunwich was shared by two locations in Georgia, the towns of Midway and Savannah, with the cemetery in Midway standing in for the infamous place where Father Thomas hangs himself. In contrast, all of the interior shots were done in Dia Studios in Rome. Despite looking quite chilly and desolate in the final movie, the shoot was actually rather humid and uncomfortable. This wasn't the only thing that was uncomfortable, however, as actress Daniela Doria, who played the ill-fated Rosie, swallowed an entire plate of tripe and regurgitated it on cue for her death scene. In some of the close-ups, though, the crew instead used a fake head that spat out the fake organs at a much quicker speed. Another gross-out scene which was rather unpleasant was the maggot scene, where a storm of maggots is blown into the room to assault the four main characters. Actress Catriona McCall was particularly apprehensive about doing the scene as she had an aversion and a fear of worms. Giving her some drinks to calm her down, though, Fulci managed to get her to reluctantly agree to do the scene, which involved a sticky patch of molasses to be brushed onto the actor's face and a clump of the maggots to be stuck to them for the close-up shots. The actors were then bombarded using wind machines with 10 kilograms of live maggots mixed in with grains of rice. Each actor had a close-up shot to do, and McCall had one of the only negative experiences of Fulci that she ever had during the shooting of this sequence. She felt, personally, that he lingered too much on her discomfort, something that was shared by actor Christopher George and Carlo De Mayo, who described him as being quite sadistic with some of the actors. McCall was also terrified of the scene where Mary is broken out of her coffin, as the pickaxe was really that close to her face when they were slamming it down. A few days later on set, after the maggot scene was shot, Fulci actually found a handful of maggots had been bundled into his bag, annoying him somewhat. It was never really discovered who played this prank, but it was heavily rumoured to have been Christopher George in retribution for the maggot scene in question. Another of Fulci's trademark tantrums ensued, though, when a rat was supposed to be eating a piece of fake brain for a scene in the film's finale. When it was constantly ignoring it, Fulci began screaming, you must eat this now, at the top of his lungs. But other than these minor instances, the set was generally considered to be a fun atmosphere, with plenty of laughter, humour and goodwill. Like several of Fulci's films, the characters in City of the Living Dead are little more than drivers of the story, with not much personality beyond their perfunctory roles as disposable pawns of the Dunwich horrors. Mary particularly seems to be set up as rather important, but she functioned very little in the narrative's conclusion. It's hard to come back from being killed off in the opening and then just to be sent off on this quest to save a world, while at the same time stopping off for a burger on the way. Peter too seems to be set up as our kind of hero, only to then be casually killed off close to the end by Sandra's undead form. Sandra has little to define her other than that she has a love of the drink and she paints the occasional picture, while Jerry seems as bewildered as everyone else being thrust into the situation that he's in. He does notably destroy Father Thomas in the conclusion, though, with a cruciform plank of wood, so I guess he's the hero by default. The only character to engender any kind of response in the film, though, is the rather pathetic Bob, who seems a genuinely disturbed young man who needs help. The way in which he's portrayed, though, elicits a good sympathy for the character, as he looks pale, malnourished, unloved and despised by pretty much every one of the townsfolk for some sort of nebulous incident involving Mr Ross's daughter. I get the feeling it wasn't anything too serious, considering that the same girl happily interacts with him later, and even offers to share a joint with him. He's terrorised by the horrors in Dunwich for quite a long time, and rather upsettingly is blamed for Emily's death and the ensuing chaos in the town. This is particularly gutting when he's discovered by Mr Ross in his basement, and promptly murdered in a brutal, merciless fashion. The fact that we don't see Mr Ross again left a bit of a sour note with me, especially as I'd have expected to at least see the zombified Bob then dose out his absolutely justified vengeance on his murderer. 
But this just didn't happen, and it's a real shame because this death was particularly mean-spirited compared to the others in the film, which range from the simple bitings to skulls being ripped open and brains removed, to the most bizarre eyes bleeding and internal organs being forced out via vomiting. Johnny Larkin of the Screaming Queens podcast, check it out if you haven't already by the way, has said that the drill scene in particular makes this film the very definition of a nasty. These gory deaths are only symptomatic though of the one true character that stays with you long after the film is over, the evil itself. Fulci achieves a real palpable fear in the film, and while the dead are rising again to murder the living, the film seems to portray them as merely incidental and a byproduct of the real villain. Even Father Thomas, who is kind of the figurehead and the leader of the zombies, is merely a conduit for the evil that he's unleashed by opening the gate to hell. After this initial scene of Father Thomas's suicide, Dunwich begins to become taken over by the evil malice that's been unleashed, and it manifests in several ways, one of which is the thick pervasive fog. It shrouds the streets in mystery and discontent, bundled with a constant howling wind that makes the whole town seem deserted despite being populated. There's a real feeling of rot and decay settling in too, as though the whole town is being corrupted by a festering spirit. Indeed, the zombies seem to be a byproduct of that decay, with the notable death of Emily being perpetrated by Father Thomas, who smothers her with a foul clump of mud, worms and rotten flesh. Puddles of this foul concoction as well crop up from time to time, indicating that the physical world is deteriorating due to the corrupting influence of hell. The dreamlike quality of the narrative and some of the images also seem to hint that reality itself is being ruined by the invasion. There's noises that sporadically sound and frighten people, walls begin to bleed or crack irreparably, and most notably mirrors begin to shatter, as though the illusion of the real world no longer exists. It's quite stark how different the locations in New York and Dunwich feel. New York is rather sunny and freshly vibrant, compared to Dunwich, which is washed out, dull and depressing, with only the occasional flashes of deep dark blue. Since this is in part a zombie film, though, we do have to talk about the zombies and their unique twist. While they certainly look the part, being in various states of decay and destruction, these are not your typical Romero zombies, starting mostly with the fact that flesh-eating is not an essential part of their being. We only get one scene of flesh-eating, and it seems to be as incidental as the undead's existence itself. In keeping with the film's portrayal of its setting being invaded by a time-warping, reality-bending malevolence, the zombie's frequent method of attack is actually ripping brains out of their victims with their bare hands, almost as if to personify the evil's act of removing reality from their victims and killing them in the process, only to then revive them as part of that imperfect reality. In other instances, their stare can force a person to cry tears of blood. While this can occur in reality, a condition known as hemolacria, it's rather rare and certainly in this film portrayed as an unnatural occurrence. It seems that the zombies' methods of attack are seeking to remove aspects of a human's internal workings, removing them from the physical world to be reborn into a metaphysical plane where only fear rules. The most extreme example of this is in Rosie's death, who actually pukes up her entire set of internal organs. Not only do they seek to remove our insides through any means necessary, but they also break the laws of physics to do it, as these zombies can teleport at will, rather like ghosts. Frequently, characters are surprised or shocked when the creatures appear and then disappear, only to then teleport just behind them and strike fast, usually killing them. It's very different to what you'd expect, and it certainly keeps you on your toes, as almost every character in this film is fair game, when the enemy is so unpredictable. So, while the story is rather all over the place, and the characters are simple threads in a grand tapestry of death and destruction, this is pretty much pure, unexpurgated Fulci at his best. Zombies, evil, gothic atmosphere and dread, inexplicable shocks, extreme gore, and nonsensical narratives which have little to no concrete conclusion. Fans of Fulci will laud this film, I'm sure, but if you can just switch off and enter the world of Fulci for just an hour and a half, I'm sure that even casual horror fans will be able to enjoy this foray into fear. Catriona McCall played the main protagonist, Mary, who was a British actress who'd initially trained as a ballerina before an injury relegated her to acting. She began in French television and films before Fulci spotted her and wanted her for a part in City of the Living Dead. 
McCall would later become recognisable in the video nasty world as she appeared in two of Fulci's later examples, The Beyond and The House by the Cemetery. Due to the vitriolic reaction in the UK, though, she did the same as Scottish actor Ian McCulloch did and tried to avoid the films that she'd starred in for a very long time, wishing to avoid any scandal. In recent times, though, she's become a lot more open and fond of her involvement with Italian horror, and she continues to make appearances in film festivals and exhibitions. American actor Christopher George, who played reporter Peter, is also someone we've encountered before in Juan Bicure Simon's Spanish slasher, Pleases. He, of course, would star in other cult B-movies of the era, like Grizzly, Day of the Animals, The Exterminator, and Graduation Day, which was one of the video nasties. We've encountered Jerry, or actor Carlo De Meo, before, too, when we covered the rape and revenge train thriller Terror Express. De Meo was famously the son of actress Alida Valley, who was Miss Tanner in Argento Suspiria and a landlady in Inferno. De Meo followed in his mother's prolific video nasty footsteps by appearing in a couple of nasties himself, including Contamination and House by the Cemetery. The sinister, gaunt figure of Bob was played by Giovanni Lombardo Radic, whom we've encountered in Stage Fright. He was also a prolific actor in the Video Nasty Scandal as well, appearing in three of the more extreme examples, Cannibal Apocalypse, Cannibal Ferox, and House on the Edge of the Park. The role of Bob was originally going to actor-director Michele Soavi, whom we've also encountered before in a large number of films, but he was instead given the role of Tommy when Radich became available. Actress Daniela Doria, who played Rosie, has also appeared in a nasty as well, Fulci's House by the Cemetery, but we've already seen her, of course, in Fulci's New York Ripper, where she suffered a rather brutal end via the killer's razor blade. In fact, the majority of her credits end with her very graphic demise, so she was certainly a trooper in all of her films. We've also encountered Fabrizio Giovine only a couple of weeks ago when we did Contraband. In this example, he plays the very catalyst of the events, Father Thomas. Venantino Venantini played the angry Mr. Ross. We encountered him on Contraband as well, and we also seen him in Terror Express quite a long time ago. Luca Venantini, who played the little boy John John, had also been in the video nasty Cannibal Apocalypse, though he was uncredited, and he later cropped up in Exterminators of the Year 3000. And yes, as you might have guessed, he was the real-life son of the actor Venantino Venantini. One of the policemen in the New York apartment scene was played by Luciano Rossi, who's been in quite a few Italian films peppered across the decades, like Emmanuel's Revenge, Salon Kitty, Death Dealers... Red Knights of the Gestapo, Contraband, and Hotel Paradise. Janet Agron, whom we've seen plenty of in Ratman and Panic, played the part of Sandra. She also had an appearance in the video nasty Eaten Alive. While the following remained uncredited in Fulci's film, they nonetheless had prominent appearances in other Italian films of note. There was Perry Perkinen, who played one of the gravediggers. He infamously appeared in Cannibal Holocaust as well as Cannibal Ferox. There was James Sampson, whom we've seen in Stage Fright, Zombie Flesh Eaters 3, and Shocking Dark. Finally, there was Martin Sorrentino, who played one of the inspectors. He's been in a few video nasties himself, like Absurd and Contamination, but he also popped up in New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, and The Big Racket. We all know director Lucio Fulci, so we're going to skip him for today. We could probably skip a lot of the crew, though, in fairness, as a lot of them are no strangers to the Nasty Pasty podcast. Writer Dardano Sacchetti we've encountered on The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, Cut and Run, and The New York Ripper. Producer Fabrizio De Angelis, we've seen him on New York Ripper, while Luciano Martino we've seen on Island of Mutations. Not so long ago, we heard the legendary Fabio Fritzi on Fulci's Contraband, and we also saw the editing of Sergio Salvati. Uh, Fritzi's work here is very similar to the themes of zombie flesh eaters. But let's be honest, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Fulci's editor of preference, Vincenzo Tomasi, turns up here too, and we've seen his talents on Panic, Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals, and New York Ripper. 
Assistant director Roberto Giandalia also featured in these films as well. The new faces that we haven't seen, though, before are producer Robert E. Warner, who worked on The Black Rainbow, To Sir With Love 2, and the remake of Earth vs. The Spider. The other producer, Mino Loy, worked on the video nasties Eaten Alive, Cannibal Ferox, as well as the Giallo film A Blade in the Dark. The main special effects guy was Gino De Rossi, who worked on Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters, as well as Burial Ground, Cannibal Ferox, Piranha 2, and Exterminators of the Year 3000. Fellow makeup artist Franco Ruffini went on to The Scorpion with Two Tails and Blast Fighter. But lastly, there was Rosario Prestopino, who also worked on Zombie Flesh Eaters, Burial Ground, New York Ripper, Iron Master, Amazonia, Demons 1 and 2, and Dario Argento's Opera. Released in Italy under the Paura title, Fulci reportedly became frustrated with the film's reaction, as he expected a bigger response than his previous outing, Zombie Flesh Eaters. When this didn't happen, he became a little bit despondent, especially as the Italian critics were as dismissive and derogatory as ever. It did have a theatrical run in the UK in 1981 under the title City of the Living Dead, but it was notably cut, with Bob's death by drill removed, as well as the brain rippings and the gut vomiting heavily reduced. In the US, the film didn't get a release until 1983, where it came under fire for using the title Twilight of the Dead, using a similar ad campaign to Romero's Dawn of the Dead to cash in on the success. After a cease and desist order was sent, the film was withdrawn and remarketed as The Gates of Hell, but this too became heavily censored. It did have releases all over the world in various forms and titles, like it was known as Fears in France, A Zombie Hung on the Bell Rope in Germany, Hell's Doors in Argentina, or just plain Father Thomas in some European regions, but in almost every format it wasn't treated well. It did get a VHS release back in the pre sir era, both in 1981 from Interlight and 1983 from Intervision. It was the cut X certificate version, though, in both instances. But Interlight were already under the spotlight for releasing Bloody Moon and Enter the Devil, whilst Intervision had released a lorry load themselves, like Cannibal Man, Expose, and Frozen Scream. Director Lucio Fulci, of course, boasted three video nasties on the list. Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. So why was City of the Living Dead not seized? A user on Twitter called Andrew198205 had asked me earlier how this one actually managed to miss out being seized when the likes of I Miss You Hugs and Kisses was. Well, the short answer is, it actually was seized. Yes, folks, we found another non-listed nasty that was still seized anyway. It was apparently confiscated multiple times by different constabularies due to appearing on unofficial trade magazine lists as one of the prohibited titles. Due to the similarity to Fulci's other official nasty examples, the police were being aggressively ambitious when they seized it, probably, but no official prosecution was brought against the film. It became nominally banned anyway when the Video Recordings app came into place, but it notably became uncut quite earlier than others of its ilk because it was specifically unprosecuted beforehand. It is now available, of course, in several editions on DVD and Blu-ray from Arrow Video, all uncut in its gory Lovecraftian glory. So, that was City of the Living Dead. Let's head once more under the breach, dear friends, by tackling the next film on our list, Tombs of the Blind Dead.
At a Spanish beachside resort, a young woman called Bet reunites with her old friend Virginia and talks about old times when the pair attended the same school. Bet is a mannequin maker, whilst Virginia is on vacation with a friend of hers called Roger. The pair invite Bet to come with them to the country the next day and she accepts, mentioning that she'll bring a friend along. While she turns up late at the train station, saying her friend has cancelled last minute, the trio nevertheless board the train and head off to the country. When Roger and Bet begins to get flirtatious in their actions, Virginia becomes jealous and leaves the carriage in a mood. When Bet confronts her about this, she reveals that the pair had a lesbian encounter in their school days, which Virginia appears to be unable to let go of. Still upset, she grabs her luggage and throws herself from the train, intending to leave Bet and Roger alone and have her own vacation. Spotting some ruins in the distance, she heads on foot towards them and finds the site completely abandoned and devoid of life. Deciding to make the most of it, she starts a small fire in a crevice and settles down to have a rest, popping her radio on and settling down with a book. Outside in the courtyard, the many headstones begin to shift around, and skeletal figures begin to rise from their graves, many of them horsebound. After hearing the noises of them wandering around, Virginia is then shocked when she opens a window and finds one of them peering inside. Screaming, she begins to run from the revenants, only for them to be following her every move. Eventually climbing onto a parapet, she steals one of their horses and rides away from the ruins, only to gain an entire battalion of the undead knights following her. They catch up to her and throw her from the horse, with her screaming as they approach. Back at the hotel the next day, Bet and Roger make inquiries as to Virginia's whereabouts, asking the maid about the ruins nearby. Calling it Bazzano, she explains that the place is wreathed in legends and myths about the knights, prompting the pair to secure horses to travel there. At the same time, the train passes by the area, and the driver spots Virginia's dead body in the fields. Bet and Roger arrive at the ruins and find them deserted. When they disembark their horses, the creatures become scared and gallop away, leaving the pair stranded. Exploring the ruins further, they find Virginia's abandoned stuff, and encounter two police officers, Marcos and Oliveira, who tell Bet and Roger that Virginia has been murdered. Identifying the body at the morgue, the pair hear that she was bitten to death by several sets of teeth, indicating a ritualistic murder. Subsequently, Roger and Bet ask Bet's assistant about Bazzano, and she relays the legend. The town used to belong to the Knights Templar, an order of knights who worshipped the devil and were excommunicated as a result. They are rumoured to leave their graves at night to hunt the living and devour them. In the morgue, the creepy mortician begins to fool around with a frog in a bowl, just as Virginia's corpse revives in the background and attacks him, biting him on the neck and sucking his blood. Going to see an expert on the medieval knights, Professor Candle, Bet and Roger learn that Bazzano was occupied by the knights in the 13th century, who took over cities and villages, increasing their wealth and status, and emblazoning their armour with a flaming ankh, symbolising eternal life. In one of their rituals, they would tie female virgins to a St. Peter's cross and repeatedly thrash their bosom with a sword, drawing blood which they would then drink in a bid to extend their life beyond that of their natural deaths. They were put on trial for their crimes and hung in public displays, left to rot while the crows pecked out their eyes. Kandal explains that the long-dead knights have solved their issue of eternal life and return night after night to commit the same rituals to their victims. Marcos, however, arrives and links Virginia's death with a nearby smuggling ring, saying that criminals, ran by Kandal's son Pedro, have broken into the morgue and stole her body and killed the mortician. After Bet telephones her to warn her of the danger, Bet's assistant is unaware that the revived Virginia has made her way inside the workshop, who suddenly attacks. In the struggle to evade her, the assistant knocks over a lamp and sets Virginia on fire, finally destroying her. Bet and Roger visit the border where Pedro's operations are said to happen, and they ask him about Virginia. After, of course, denying it, Roger asks that Pedro and his lady Nina accompany them to Bazzano to see what happens at nightfall. As they settle in for the night, Pedro goes for a walk with Bet, while Nina stays inside and tries to seduce Roger. When they reach the cemetery, Pedro suggests that they get it on, but Bet refuses, at which point Pedro attacks and rapes her. Roger finds another of Virginia's shoes, while Bet escapes from Pedro when he hears nearby bells tolling. The graves begin to open once more, and the undead knights return again. 
he is frozen in place as the undead encroach upon him and eat him alive. Roger happens upon the scene and fires his gun at them, causing the revenants to follow the sound of the gunfire. As Roger runs and begs to be let inside where Nina and Bet are hiding, Nina refuses to let him in as she believes Pedro would never be killed by anybody. The women begin to fight over opening the door, while the knights catch up with Roger and hack his arm off with a sword. Finally getting rid of Nina, Bet opens the door to find a fatally injured Roger and drags him away to safety, as Nina's screams attract the undead towards her and she is eaten alive as a result. With his dying breath, Roger pleads with Bet to remain silent as the creatures seem to hunt via sound, and after he dies, Bet remains quiet. The revenants nonetheless begin to walk towards her as her heartbeat becomes audible due to her fear, and she escapes not before spraining her foot. As she hobbles from Bazzano across the country, the knights pursue on horseback as dawn breaks. Spotting the passing train that brought her here, Bet yells at them to stop, attracting the knights towards her. The train stops, with the conductor helping Bet to get on board, just as the knights arrive and disembark their steeds. Gaining access to the train, the knights begin to slash and devour all of the train's passengers, as well as the driver and conductor, as it then begins to drive off towards the next station, with Bet hiding inside a pile of coal on one of the freight carriages. As it arrives into the next station, Bet is seen emerging from the coal extremely dishevelled and her hair turned white, helped to the platform by a railway staff member. As the new passengers board the train, they scream at the sight of the dead bodies, and Bet screams in terror as she realises the blind dead have hitched a ride with her. Excuse us, Professor, there's been a murder, a friend of ours. Then what do you want of me? You should go to the police. You're an authority on the Middle Ages, Professor. I'd like to know about the Templars and their ritual secrets. You say the Templars? Our friend was murdered at Berzano. Huh? At Berzano? That's where the Templars' cemetery is. This is magnificent. He's mad. Can you tell us about it then? Uh, yes, I can. Here it is. In the 12th century, the Templars fought in the Crusades. They brought back great treasures from the East with them. Oh, yes, and they also came back worshipping black magic. The Templars took over by force and their blood rituals sacrificed every virgin girl in the village. They continued to ravage the countryside until the King of Spain conquered them and brought them to trial. They were hung and left for all to witness that witchcraft was forbidden. The crows ate the eyes out of the cadavers. But can that be true? Absolutely. The archives here date back a thousand years. What are you trying to say? Are you suggesting that some new sect is practicing the old rituals? No, I wouldn't say that. What then? They're the old Templars that have come back to life. What kind of nonsense is that? Nonsense? Are you sure? Has science answered all the unknown questions of the world? The Templars from the East brought many secrets, and among them, they solved death and its mystery. But that's impossible. And now they've returned again from their tombs. They're the blind dead. But that will be no handicap, as they still can hear their victims and will continue with terror and murder. That's very interesting. Huh? Who's there? Professor, your story is very intriguing, more like a fairy tale, I would say. Believe what you want to, but excuse me. Rather simple, but undeniably unique and intriguing, Tombs of the Blind Dead takes the zombie film by the horns and turns it into something both familiar and foreign, with exciting and memorable results. The film is one that really typifies the theme of this week, zombies with a twist, as the iconic blind dead who feature in the film are in essence the traditional zombie. Amando de Osorio, however, depicts them with such wonderfully fiendish flourishes that they come off as remarkably unique and decidedly deadly. To understand a little more about the tombs of the blind dead, you do have to cast your mind or make an imaginative leap back to the 70s if you weren't alive then. While Romero's 1968 video nasty shocker Night of the Living Dead redefined a movie monster forever, the horror genre itself was not living at all in Spain. It was very, very dead. Autocratic nationalist General Franco still had control of Spain during the 60s, combined with a very strict enforcement of Catholicism and religious values. 
The horror film had little to no screen presence whatsoever due to these restrictions, but it was all about to change towards the latter end of the 60s, when a new standard of filmmaking was adopted to encourage European co-productions. Combined with a looming economic disaster involving corrupt bank dealings, the Spanish horror film industry was about to boom due to the low production costs combined with the ease of exporting new material to territories across Europe. This eventually led to stuff like the films of Paul Nashi, like The Werewolf and the Yeti and Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. There was Jorge Grau's uh, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, Eloy D. Iglesias' uh, Glass Ceiling and The Cannibal Man, and of course the Blind Dead series from Armando de Osorio. Before we get onto the characters of the film, let's first chat about the main draw of the film, our villains. I mean, the real Knights Templar, of course, were a medieval order of knights who used to protect Christian pilgrims from invading Muslim armies. They lived an honourable life of chivalry and devout worship, living modest day-to-day schedules and working hard all of the time. Their bonus, however, was that they were exceptionally good at their job, attracting many numbers of skilled fighters who were willing to fight for God. Their fame and skill brought them immense amounts of wealth, which they spent little of due to their vows of poverty and charity. Instead, they loaned money to monarchy across Europe, essentially inventing the current system of credit and taxes, and this grew their net worth and numbers even more. At the height of their fame, however, the French king, Philip IV of France, grew jealous of the Templars' fame and conspired with the Pope, Clement V, to spread a secretive writ containing details of fabricated crimes against the Templars to be opened on a specific morning. All across Europe, on a Friday the 13th, the writs were unsealed, detailing intense accounts of the Templars' sacrilegious and blasphemous behaviour, such as wanton murder, rape, practices of homosexuality, blasphemous language, urinating on the cross and the Virgin Mary, practising devil worship and heresy, and even blood sacrifices. As a result, the Templars in their thousands were rounded up and turned over to the Inquisition, who were merciless in their torture of the knights who under the extreme duress, of course, confessed to the trumped-up crimes. The Templars then were all but executed via hangings in public displays, with burning at the stake reserved for each Grand Master of each order, until the final Grand Master, Jacques de Molay, was burned on an island in the Seine in 1314. I'm not actually that much into history, but I've played Broken Sword enough to know the Templar story by heart. The icing on the cake, of course, was that Philip IV didn't get his hands on any of the Templars' wealth, and it is now considered lost. The only thing to take from this is that Friday the 13th are indeed quite unlucky, and you should never trust religious people in power. Gnostic and deistic issues aside, the blind dead in this film are based on these real-life knights, though their history is somewhat exaggerated and jigged around a little bit to suit the plot. In the fictional version, the Templars were indeed practitioners of devilish rituals, including the murder of virgins and the imbibement of blood to extend their lives. They sort of had the treasure, of course, in this film as well, but they also suffer the same fate as the real-life Templars, being hung in public displays. One only has to see the work of Francisco Goya to realise how much the Spanish love their ghastly public displays of murder, but in this narrative it's rather poignant as it gives the unique element of our ghouls having no eyes, as a result of crows pecking them out in their hours of suffering. Our zombies, therefore, are blind and hunt entirely by sound. This makes for some really interesting sequences, especially as it's not massively dwelt upon, except in one moment. Unlike modern movies, which would crowbar in exposition to bombard the audience in a pantomime fashion that you can't make a sound, it's rather subtle in this example, and it's only mentioned once verbally by Roger, who finds out the hard way that the creatures are listening their way to their prey. Not only that, but our blind dead retain every bit of know-how and dexterity that they had when they were alive, still utilising their cadaverous horses and wielding broadswords in deadly swordplay. Of course, still being undead revenants, however, they also freely bite and eat flesh or drink blood with great aplomb, satisfying our own expectations of what we want from a zombie film. Despite being made in 1971, or 1972 as IMDb says, it's strange how really fresh the depiction of the night seems to be on screen, especially with the decades of zombie meat that's been shoved into our faces since Romero's Grimebaker. 
My only slight regret, though, is that the Blind Dead have much less screen time than what I expected, but it was still enough to imbue the film with the menace that it needed. Then we have our living characters, who for the most part are also pawns in the story, which is mostly emphasised on the legends surrounding the knights. Our main girl Bet, though, seems to be quite independent and headstrong, well with the exception of one scene, and she portrays someone that we can at least be sympathetic with. She's a bit of a victim of circumstance as well, meeting with an old friend by happenstance and ending up in the country on a small vacation. She's at times maternal and caring, like with Virginia in the flashback, or flirty and daring, like she is with Roger. Owning her own mannequin business shows that she has intelligence and drive as well, and she's for the most part a very balanced and multi-dimensional character. There is a rather nasty scene of rape, though, involving her, where she's clearly expressing her refusal to engage with Pedro, only for him to assault her and force her into the act. It's rather mean-spirited, more than a little uncomfortable with the sexualizing of the act, and it's salt in the wound of Bet's already traumatic experiences. Thankfully, Bet afterwards is portrayed as quite a realistic victim to her ordeal, rather than being ambivalent and indifferent. She stares wildly into space, she ignores her rapist even when he offers a cigarette in front of her face, and she flees at the next opportune moment. Her rapist too, the vile Pedro, thankfully gets a comeuppance, though I did wish for a more brutal end at the same time. I felt Roger was being set up as kind of a masculine hero to rescue Bet from her situation, though it was refreshing yet again to see that it's in fact Bet who's left to rescue him in the end. It's a rather interesting play of gender dynamics, especially when it turns out that Bet's biggest threat turns out to be the other woman in the group, Nina, who grows jealous of Pedro's attraction for Bet and violently attacks her as a result. Thankfully, the daft Nina also gets her just desserts when she can't stop screaming, luring the insatiable ghouls towards her. Virginia, however, is one of the more immature characters that I've seen in a while. I mean, sure, you can get uppity about your long-lost friend suddenly taking an interest in your male friend when she had a cheeky lesbian encounter with you back in college, but is that really an excuse to go throw yourself from a train and shack up in an abandoned ruin? I mean, even drug users would struggle to find the charm of a mouldy, manky, abandoned set of ruins, whilst Virginia happily settles in with a book, sleeping bag, and an improvised campfire. But at the same time, it's also one of those situations that she can't go easily back on, so she probably just decides to take the consequences. She dies for her troubles, of course, and then we're treated to an interesting subplot of what happens to her afterwards. In true zombie film fashion, she's revived in the morgue as an undead, and she attacks several people before being burned alive by Bet's assistant. The fact that Bet never gets to find out about this, nor indeed does it have any bearing on the future plot, I actually find quite charming. I like the little segue into a different avenue of the Blind Dead's tale. Now, the rape scene does bring an uncomfortable clashing of the idea of sex and death, which, of course, is frequently touted by Freud and psychiatrists all over the world. Horror and eroticism, though, are frequent bedfellows in film, and this example is no exception. Most of the character's problems, in fact, stem from sex itself. Virginia has been confused for many years by her sexual experience with Bette, and she becomes upset at the obvious sexual flirtations between Roger and Bette. After she's died, the morgue workers callously denigrate her by saying she was asking for it. Going around flaunting herself, it's almost as if they want to be bitten, and this one was really hot as well, revealing quite a scathing conservative sexist viewpoint of the idea of sexuality. Indeed, Nina is frustrated because of Pedro's virility and her supposed inability to keep him satisfied, so much so that she attacks Bet for, inverted commas, having sex with him and her refusing to accept that Pedro is dead simply because he's a man who can defend himself. Pedro is therefore portrayed as someone seemingly able to do this because he's so macho and full of sexual energy. Roger, by comparison, is seen as weak by Nina, as he refuses to engage in her flirtations with him. In a final note on how the sexual aspect plays in, by the end of the film, Bette is dishevelled, haggard and exhausted, bearing suddenly white hair from the shock of her trauma. It's fitting that now in this form she survives the film, stripped of her sexuality, her final sex act to have been one of violence, and her pluckiness and confidence all but gone. The Revenants actually do seem to function as conservative moral busybodies, punishing their victims who engage in sexual activity. 
In the flashback as well, they expose the breasts of their victim, lashing at them with a sword and almost punishing the image of her naked body to chastise the sinful display. In another poignant but gory image, a mother on the train in the finale screams in horror and clutches her child as a zombie attacks her, spilling blood all over her silently crying baby. Even sex that ends in new life is severely punished, especially when the said child also then begins making noise. It's, that's clearly one of the darker scenes in the whole movie, and it's more than a little disturbing. Other elements of the film, like the on-location venue of Bizarro, really adds to the mystical and ghostly atmosphere, and it does elicit some genuinely tense and creepy moments. The soundtrack is suitably eerie, whilst some of the camera work provides us with some very memorable sights, like the zombified Virginia walking down the Isle of Mannequin parts, or the slow sequences of the skeletal knights chasing their mark on horseback against heavy shadows and low dusk. It also helps that there's some graphic bloodshed too, though it's not a Fulci film by any means. There's enough elements of the horror for almost any level of enthusiast, and if anything, the film is worth it for these knights alone. They do look like something from a medieval painting, and they will stick with you long after the final bloody reel is over. Main girl Bette was played by Danish actress Lone Fleming, who returned for the sequel Return of the Evil Dead, though in a very different role, as the Blind Dead films all have little narrative continuity, except for the knights themselves. She also popped up in 1975's Evil Eye and The Possessed. Cesar Berner, who played Roger, didn't really appear in much else other than 1973's Green Inferno, which was a Spanish riff on Tarzan. Virginia was played by Maria Elena Arpon, who'd been in 1970's The House That Screamed, while the vile Pedro was played by Jose Thelman, who, like Fleming, reappeared as a different character in Return of the Evil Dead. Nina was played by Veronica Lemera, who'd been in Barber's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, while Francisco Sanz, who played Professor Candal, returned in a different role in Return of the Evil Dead. Juan Cortez, who played the creepy mortician, had a small role in A Fistful of Dollars, while the female sacrifice in the flashback sequence was played by Jess Franco regular Carmen Yazide, who appeared in the video Nasties, The Demons, and Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, as well as A Virgin Among the Living Dead. Director Armando Diasorio was almost exclusively famous for his work on the Tombs of the Blind Dead series, which led to another three sequels, 1973's Return of the Evil Dead, 1974's The Ghost Galleon, and 1975's Night of the Seagulls. He also did some films like Fangs of the Living Dead in 1969 and Night of the Sorcerers in 1974. The Blind Dead creations, however, were clearly his passion, as a reboot entitled Curse of the Blind Dead is due for release later this year, having been penned by Osorio himself. Producer J.A. Perez Gainer was rather prominent in Spanish exploitation, having played many a part in Paul Nashi productions like Horror Rises from the Tomb and Vengeance of the Zombies. He also took part in two video nasties, namely The Werewolf and the Yeti and Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. The music was composed by Anton Garcia Abril, who returned for the rest of the tetralogy, whilst cinematography was done by Pablo Rapol, who later collaborated with Fulci on his version of White Fang. Editor Jose Antonio Rojo returned on the sequel Return of the Evil Dead and the 1975 film Night of the Walking Dead. The special effects were done by two chaps called Jose. One was Jose Luis Campos, who also worked on the sequel, while Jose Gomez Soria worked on the 1973 film The Dracula Saga. Now, the first thing to note about the film's release is that there are two very different versions of the film available. The version I saw was the original Spanish version, entitled La Noche del Terror Ciego, which roughly means The Night of the Blind Terror. This version is the only version that's considered complete without any cuts made, but it does have Spanish audio, of course. There's also the US version, which is under the Tombs of the Blind Dead title, but this version is considerably different. First off, it relocates the flashback sequence of the girl being slashed with a sword to the beginning before the opening credits, and it removes all the sights of her breasts being slashed and the knights drinking the blood flow. It also removes the majority of the sexual scenes, including the lesbian encounter and also Bette's rape, 
as well as the gory scenes like Roger and Nina's demise, as well as the penultimate attack on the train's passengers. Even more bizarrely, there's also a version of the film entitled Revenge from Planet Ape. Yeah, they tried to sell this as an unofficial sequel to Planet of the Apes. To achieve this, they removed all references to knights, including the flashback sequences, and replaced any scenes mentioning them with establishing shots of the location Bizarro. The opening credits now come with a voiceover as well, explaining that the setting is meant to be post-apocalyptic, and inferring that the blind dead are in fact reanimated apes with a taste for blood. I mean, really? I believe this version is heavily censored too, so it must just be so bizarre to see it being repurposed in this way. The censored US version, though, with the English dub, made it into the UK cinemas in 1973, passed at Certificate X. The same cut version ended up on pre-cert VHS in 1984, smack dab in the midst of the nasty scandal. Considering it was released by Precision, who hadn't released anything contentious, and the fact that it had all traces of controversial sex and gore removed, I very much doubt that this would have garnered much attention on the shelves, despite clearly being a zombie film. It does have a rather interesting release history, however. After the preset version became unavailable after the Video Recordings Act, the next VHS release was from Channel 5 Video in 1988, where the already butchered US print took another 1 minute and 57 seconds of cuts. In 1994, Redemption Films tried to release the much longer uncut Spanish version, but this time they were hit with new cuts, totalling 1 minute 51 seconds. To remove the breast slashing scene, the blood consumption, the rape scene as well, and some of the gory bits. This version continued until Anchor Bay again submitted the uncut version in 2005 for DVD release. Surprisingly, all of the edits were restored, except the BBFC still required 16 seconds of cuts to Bet's rape scene. This version is still the most complete form of the film the UK has, so the film is significantly still censored over here to this day. It is, however, available uncut overseas in the Region 1 DVD Blind Dead saga, but I know some of us are clamouring for that restored collection ourselves here in the UK. So let's just hope someone's listening and gets this classic to us in a pristine print once and for all. And that's the show over for today, folks. Thanks very much for listening, as ever, and I hope you enjoyed my ramblings. As usual on The Nasty Pasty, we've got another episode in coming next week, and it's a bit of a peculiar theme, but nonetheless, one of the films is linked with one of today's films. Next week, I'm tackling two horrors that have an animal's name in the title. But unlike the whole point of titles, these references are actually misnomers and are potentially misleading about what the film is actually about. First up, we have the ecological horror riot, 1972's Frogs, while the other one is the mysterious 1975's Night of the Seagulls. Now, Frogs, you might assume, is about killer frogs, while Night of the Seagulls, you'd probably be expecting something akin to Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, right? Well, you couldn't be further from the truth. Frogs actually has every animal except frogs committing the killings, while Night of the Seagulls is in fact the final film of the Blind Dead Tetralogy. Surprised? Well, you will be next week. Until then, enjoy yourselves, guys, have a great weekend, and I'll speak to you again in no time. Good night! (laughs) 